Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Good. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Bible Church. Welcome to Easter, or sometimes as we call it on staff, the Super Bowl for Christians, right? So this is one that Tom Brady's not winning. Amen? All right. That's right. I'm a Cowboys fan. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus is risen today, and so I wanted to start off just by reading the gospel account in Matthew where they went to the tomb to find Jesus because they thought he was dead. And so they come to the tomb the day after he was put in the tomb to make it smell nice so they could worship him there because they'd lost all hope and what they found was something they didn't expect. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 through 8. It goes like this. After the Sabbath at dawn... On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. It's a story that we've probably read a couple times. And coming into this morning, I think we both make a couple of assumptions about each other. And I want to start there. You're assuming, hopefully, that I just said I'm a senior pastor, I look older than I, that I am older than I look, right? Because who would hire a 22-year-old senior pastor, yeah? Found some gray hairs the other day, don't worry about it, pluck those bad boys right out, all right? Beauty is pain. But anyway, I think we come with some assumptions. I'm assuming, actually, that people that are here today have two things in common, and they might not be shared. One is that you either love Jesus or you're here because you know somebody who does, Because it's the reason why we get up in the morning and you're here and not eating brunch somewhere or still in your pajamas celebrating Easter. I'm assuming that when we read the story of Jesus rising from the dead, that is one that you've probably heard before. And if you haven't, it's a good one. (laughs) But if you have, and I'm assuming you have, then what I want to do today is talk about how we talk about the resurrection. Because I think the way we talk about the resurrection shapes the story we tell in the world that we see and others see when we follow Jesus. But before we do that... Um, at Crossroads, every Sunday morning we have kind of a rhythm, and we start our morning by praying together before the sermon for a couple reasons. We live in a consumer-driven, critique-driven culture, and that's not what church is and is supposed to be. So what that means for us is that when we come to church, we have two goals. Everybody in this room, we have two goals at Crossroads. One is we want to know God. We want to know God. That means we open his scripture and dive in. And and the beauty of knowing God through his scripture is realizing that you can read the thing from cover to cover. You can listen to the Matthew story once or a hundred times and you can know full well that you'll never get to the end of knowing fully God because he's bigger than you. And I need my God to be bigger than me. 
So it, it points us to his majesty, that I serve and worship something that's beyond and greater and bigger than me. And then two, we worship God because God made us to feel. God made us to worship with mind, will, and emotions, and we embrace all those things because we are fully God, and he wants all of us, not just some of us. And so we know God, and we worship God. And in this space, for the next, what I've been told should be 20-ish minutes, (laughs) um, (laughs) we will try and do both those. And why we pray is really twofold. One, we're going to ask you if you feel comfortable to pray to yourself because we believe that God is alive. That's why we're here that the Holy Spirit's active in your world. So we don't come as critics. We come as partners, and we trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in your soul. And, and we don't come as critics because then we just look and critique. We come and say, how is God growing me today? What do I need to hear? And then two, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I got up this morning to go to the sunrise because I love the Lord more than all of you. And <laughs> I don't want to say something stupid, okay? Uh, so pray with me right now. God, I'm so thankful that we can gather today and celebrate a God who's alive. I'm thankful just for days of joy like this, where family can come together and share stories that shape and form how we see the world. I pray as we look at how we see the resurrection, it shapes and forms our everyday. I'd ask if you're comfortable, spend a couple seconds just quietly to yourself and pray that the Lord teaches you something that the Spirit guides and shapes your heart this morning. I'd also ask that you pray for me, that what I say might be encouraging, true to the word of God, might be edifying and might bring glory to the God that we all showed up to serve and follow and that we worship. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in it together now, everybody. All right. So I got asked a couple weeks ago by a single guy. We're at lunch together, and he sat down, and he looked at me. I had a kid eight months ago. I got asked by this single guy, hey, Charlie, tell me what it's like to be a parent. Use your words and describe it for me. I looked at him for about 15 seconds and didn't say anything. He thought I was weird. I was trying to find words that he could understand that would appropriately describe what being a parent is like. And then I realized no words I'm using can possibly make you fathom the difference from singleness to parenthood. It's like if you talk to anybody born in the mid to late 90s and you tell them the Cowboys are a Super Bowl team, you know? It's not words that you use will help them grasp what that actually is. So with these moments in life that completely change our perspective from singleness to parent, even from single to marriage, I do a good bit of weddings. And every time I do a wedding, there's a quote by Mark Twain that I use, and it goes like this. He says about weddings, he says about love, it makes of two fractional lives a whole. It will give a new gladness to the sunshine, a new fragrance to the flowers, new beauty to the earth. A new mystery to life, it will give new revelation to love, new depth to sorrow, new impulses to worship. In that day, the scales will fall from our eyes, and we shall look upon a new world. There are moments in life that dramatically shape how we see the world around us. The resurrection was one of those moments. The resurrection isn't just a conversation about something that happened, but a thing that dramatically shaped how we see our everyday. And I think the way that we talk about the resurrection shapes the world we see and others see in us. So today I want to talk a bit about how we talk about the resurrection. And there's two primary ways that I think we talk about it, and they're both really good, mind you. Don't mishear me this morning. The first one is usually where we all go. We talk about the resurrection as a past historical event. 
What we want to do is we get in conversations with friends and family that either believe or don't believe. And our first pitch is always to go to, let me prove it to you. I can prove to you the resurrection actually happened. And you know what, guys? I, I really think I, I can. I can prove to you that the resurrection happened. There's a common method for proving historical events, the, the, um, the truthfulness of it. It's called inference to the best explanation. And what that means is, and it's practiced outside of the Christian faith, what that means is when something happens, I look at the ramifications and the repercussions and the actions beyond that initial event. And then I say, because these people acted this way, what's the best explanation to make sense of the way people acted after, right? So the fact that you showed up this morning and aren't at brunch makes me believe that you know of Jesus or you know of somebody that knows of Jesus. It's this idea that we look at all the things that happened after and say, hey, I believe the best explanation can only be this one thing. And when we look at the empty tomb, the resurrection, I think it's pretty clear that evidence points towards Jesus not being where they left him on Friday. I can give you a couple examples. I will. I'm not going to get too deep into it. One of them quite simply, is we know that the tomb was empty because the disciples talked about it in Jerusalem. So if the disciples were making this up, if the tomb wasn't actually empty, all somebody would have had to do is point to the body in the tomb and say, he's still there, you know? If you think about it, they didn't go to a city far away. They didn't go across the world. They didn't go to another country. They stayed in the same city. And they say, see the tomb? It's right there. It's empty. And nobody could refute that. And they didn't refute it because it was. There's a a, a 19th century German philosopher and theologian, and he said it like this. He said, the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. He says that there's no way you could go on talking about the empty tomb if it wasn't actually empty. And even the people that didn't want it to be true in the first century believed the tomb was empty. That's why the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Roman governors that, that Jesus threatened their authority said clearly the body was stolen. If you're saying the body was stolen, you're admitting that it wasn't there. There's a, an archaeologist and Dr. Paul Mayer, and he says, positive evidence from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly not in his favor, the fact is genuine. What that points to is whether you were on Team Jesus in the first century or not, they can all agree that the tomb was empty. There's a New Testament critic, and he talks about how I don't believe in the New Testament, and I don't believe in Jesus, but there's one thing we can't refute, and that's that Jesus wasn't in the tomb two days, three days later. And so we have to come to terms with all of these subsequent actions and say the only plausible explanation is that the tomb was empty, that Jesus wasn't there anymore. One of my favorite facts that people go to sometimes when they prove the truth of the claims of the disciples, when they say that the disciples made it up, or the followers of Jesus made it up, if you're going to create a legend, you're going to do so with oomph. If you're going to create a legend, you're going to make an airtight story that nobody can poke holes in. We just read it. The first witnesses to Jesus rising was women. And in the first century world, that would not have carried water. They didn't have weight, and they couldn't be witnesses in a legal court. If you're making this up, you're not making the first witnesses to Jesus' rising women. You're making it powerful, influential men. And so when you put all these things together... When you put all these things together, it seems to point to one place. And it seems to point to me that the resurrection actually happened. And if you keep following the evidences, the subsequent actions, what you see is that the disciples didn't just make something up or steal the body because 
They died for it. And here's the deal. You don't die for a lie. (laughs) It'll push you to death, but usually you don't die for it. And maybe one or two are really crazy, and they did, but 10 of the 12 died excruciating deaths for Jesus because they believed wholeheartedly that he rose from the dead because they saw him, it says in Corinthians. One of them had the worst death for any extrovert of all time. They left him on an island all by himself, you know? And for me, I resonate with that. I'm like, man, burn me alive, but don't leave me alone, you know? And so you have this weight of subsequent actions that roll into one plausible conclusion, and that's Jesus wasn't there anymore. He rose from the dead. But here's the deal. When we talk about the resurrection as a historical event, I think it's good and beautiful, but I don't think it paints a full picture of what the resurrection is supposed to be. We get down our checklist and we say, we're going to prove to you that Jesus was right. Let me tell you something. Jesus is right. He wasn't concerned with being right. He was concerned with making us right with God. And so Jesus' primary concern wasn't checking the box of I'm right and you're wrong. Sometimes when we see the resurrection prove it just as a past historical event, sometimes people aren't changed. I actually say most times people aren't changed. It's because of something called confirmation bias. I don't know if you've heard of this before. There's a bunch of studies in the 70s that talked about it, but it goes well beyond that. Basically, it stands to believe that you will choose to believe and prove to believe whatever you want to believe. What that means is that we're not unbiased individuals. It means that you're going to come to a set of information with baggage, and you're going to use that set of information to either prove or disprove what you already know to be true. It's why I believe with every ounce of my being that in August of this year, the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl, right? Even though I know when I look at all the weight of the information, that's probably not going to happen, right? It's this idea that you believe that your son or daughter, even though they didn't make the high school team, is going to play D1 in college. And that's beautiful because you love them, but that's called confirmation bias. Uh, Henry Thoreau talked about it a while ago before the studies. He said, we hear and apprehend only what we already know. The truism, I'll believe it when I see it, might be better stated, I'll see it when I believe it. Leo Tolstoy, philosopher said, a little more aggressively, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he's not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he's firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of a doubt, what is laid before him. And we know it because we've seen politics in our country, right? It's this idea that I think the historicity of the resurrection is incredibly important. And God uses that every once in a while. But I don't think facts change lives. I think ultimately when we talk about the resurrection, the point was to change the lives of the people that followed Jesus. And when we talk about the historical evidence of the evidences of the resurrection, even though they're important, they aren't the driving force of changed hearts and minds. They don't cause people to ultimately see a new world. They cause us to see the world we're already in more distinctly. And so we talk about the resurrection as a past event, and we want to prove it, and that's beautiful and good, and it's a great pursuit. But I don't know if it's the best good. We also talk about the resurrection as, as a future hope, because Jesus did. Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says in John 3.16, the one we all know, for this is the way that God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's this central principle to God and being resurrected is that Jesus promises us a future beyond this one. 
There's a component to the gospel that doesn't die when we die, that continues to go on. It's the hope that we aspire towards. Paul talks about it in Corinthians. He says in verse 14, he says, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. And then he builds in that same chapter and he says, If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. So he says, if our hope ends with death, then we should be taken pity on because what we hope for is well beyond that. It's a beautiful sentiment. It's one that I need to cling to, especially on days like today. Like Dylan mentioned, I don't know if you've read the news today, but this morning in Sri Lanka, eight churches got bombed during their Easter services and 200 people are dead and 400 and change are wounded, you know? I need to believe that the world exists in a better place outside of what I see. I need to believe that God's still active and moving. I need to believe in a future hope beyond the world that I'm in right now. And Jesus says, this is what I've came to do. I've came to give you hope where there is no hope. I've came to rewrite the narrative where death doesn't define the end anymore, but I do because I beat death. It's beautiful. That's why Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying something we've probably heard at funerals. Now when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's the idea that this world isn't defined by what we see, but Christ came to show us something differently. And part of his new world is our future hope. But here's the deal. When we talk about the resurrection as primarily a future hope, what we miss is today. And sometimes we do that. Because Jesus says, I came to bring you hope for the future and eternal life with me. But he also said things like this. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said in Matthew 12, if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. Jesus didn't come to only talk about future hope. He came to point to a final hope that changes our present reality. And so we come together and we celebrate and talk about the resurrection because it happened a couple thousand years ago as if it's something that points to something else that's going to happen instead of, instead of a reality that changes our everyday. And here's the deal. I believe firmly that Jesus came to change our everyday and God cares about yours because he's a good father. My kid is eight months old. And, and let me tell you something, man. I love the everydays. I do. It's been amazing to watch how I've changed as I've been a dad. It's been amazing to watch how I'm softer than I used to be. It's been amazing to watch how one person can control me so much. And she's like this big, you know. Um, it's been amazing to watch that. And, and, and I very much care. I very much care about how she ends up. I care about the adult she becomes. I care about the college she goes to. I care about her character. I care and I want to see the day when she's a contributing member to our family, you know. And when she marries up, God bless, I hope, Right? I want, I want to see all those things that I'm well taken care of when I'm old. I want to see those things. I can't wait for those things. But let me tell you something. There are some days, especially this week, where I left before she got up and got home when she was already in bed, and that made me sad because I care about the day-to-day. -day. I care about how she's becoming who she's becoming. If we do that as parents and God's a good father, why would he not? Jesus came not just to talk about something that did happen or something that will happen, but Jesus came literally to change our day-to-day, -day, and the resurrection is evidence of that, of this new world unfolding right in front of us. And that was Jesus' message throughout his ministry. Started the first time we see Jesus be Jesus, as we would define him, when he took off the Clark Kent glasses and says, I'm going to be something else, was in John chapter 2. It's his first miracle. 
And he says, hey, I'm at this wedding, and his mom asks him to do a miracle, and he takes old wineskins, old wineskins, and puts new, better wine in there, and he says, this is what it's like. I'm going to redefine what you thought you knew and give it new meaning. I'm going to show you a world unfolding in the middle of this one, one that you didn't think existed. He does it time and time again. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the idea of how Jesus loves, and that he came into our world and said, I'm going to change how you see love. I'm going to give it new definition and new meaning. I'm going to open your eyes to a new world of love that you didn't know existed. And he said, no longer will your love for other people depend on how they treat you, which was the law of the land. He said, your love for other people doesn't depend if they're mean to you that day. Your love for other people solely depends on how I've loved you. And I'm about to die for you. And what that means is that our love knows no end that the depths of our love isn't extinguished if somebody else has a bad day and takes it out on us. Jesus redefines and shows his disciples a new and better way to love. And the resurrection is all about showing people the power of the new world in the middle of the old one they're living in. It's not just past or future, it's present realities that shape who we're becoming in the world that we show people as we follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis He's a Christian author. He's one of my favorites. He says this in his book, Miracles. He said, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole of the universe. He's the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. A pastor I know and follow named Brian Hedges says, The resurrection shows us that matter matters. And this is why the early Christians looked to the future with confidence. That he created the order, that the created order itself would be redeemed. That's what Jesus did. It's how Jesus taught. It's how Jesus treated people. I think through stories of how he lived, and it was juxtaposed to how they lived in that day. Two popped to mind that are pretty popular. The first one is in Mark, and he's eating with one of the, the disciples at that point. He wasn't a disciple. His name was Levi then, and he was a tax collector, which was the lowest of the low. He stole money from his own people and gave it to the people that impressed his people. So he wasn't liked. And Jesus eats a meal with him, which wasn't done. Pharisees, religious people, stop by and say, this is not how we practice our faith. And Jesus says, this is exactly how we practice faith in my kingdom. See the world that you don't see. Let me show it to you. He says, these are the kind of people I'm calling. I think of the Samaritan woman in John chapter four. If you don't know the story, there's a woman at a well at noon. And when it says she's at a well at noon, it means she had no friends. It means she was an embarrassment because you didn't go to the well in the heat of the day. And it's because she had several different husbands, which was really looked down upon in that day. She wasn't seen as clean or fit. And Jesus sits next to her, a man speaking to a woman, which also didn't happen in the heat of the day. And he says, hi. And she says, if you knew me, you wouldn't talk to me. And he says, I've known you for a long time, and I'm talking to you. Jesus showed people a new world right in the middle of the one they lived in. Jesus showed people a new world that went well beyond what they had seen. And so we... When we talk about the resurrection, the resurrection is evidence that world exists and flourishes right in our midst. The resurrection was a sign that the new world Jesus spoke about, promised, and lived out was more than a historical event or a future hope. It was a present reality to those who follow his ways. And the first church saw it. That's how they lived. 
We see it in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul is writing to this church and he's encouraging and reminding them to live out the ways of Jesus. And he says this in verse 17 and 18. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. Verse 18, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so you can know what is the hope of his calling, the wealth of his glorious inheritance. He's saying, see the world that Jesus showed you. See the world that he came to establish. See the world that he says is unfolding right in the middle of this one. And that's what they did. So the first church had a good way of really taking what Jesus did. They took what was already known and they rebranded it, if you will. They gave it new meaning, deeper, more powerful meaning. And so in the first century world, they followed a Caesar who ruled the world. And he saw himself as kind of a demigod. And so you'd gather in these gatherings in your communities and you'd talk about how great Caesar was and you'd say in unison, Caesar is Lord. And you'd worship the emperor of Rome because he thought he was put there divinely. And so what the first century Christians did is they'd gather in small communities. They'd gather and talk about Jesus and they'd say Jesus is Lord. And the Greek word for church is ecclesia, and that's exactly what the Romans called it, and that's exactly what the Christians called it. They took something that existed and said, let me show you a world that exists right inside of this one that you miss. See, when we talk about the resurrection, it's beyond past and future. It's present. It's a present reality we have to walk in as followers of Jesus. Well, you've heard the story once or a hundred times. Paul continues in Ephesians, and he says in verse 19, and what is the incomparable greatness of his power towards us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength? This power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as, at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What he's talking about when he says that, he's saying that sometimes you don't think you can do it, but the same power that rose me from the dead, the sign that this world exists, that same power you have because God's alive. That same power, when you don't think you can do it, you have. Because I walk among you and because I'm living and because you are my ambassadors. And so the resurrection isn't something that did happen or will point us to. The resurrection is how we live every day as resurrection people. Because when we do that, we paint a picture of the new world that Jesus came to show us. It's an everyday calling. It's the same pastor that I quoted earlier ago says it like this. He says, it also motivates and empowers us to push back the tide of suffering and evil in the present world through word and deed, in mercy and in justice, all in Jesus' name. The question we ask ourselves this morning as we gather and talk about the story that we've heard before is what world are we showing people and how we live out our faith? The question we have to ask ourselves is when we talk about the resurrection today and hopefully again before next Easter, but you do you, when we talk about these things, what world are we talking about? How are we talking about it? Are we talking about it in a way that shapes and forms our everyday? Because that's what Jesus did. So I go back to the quote at the beginning, the Mark Twain quote. It makes fractional lives whole. It gives a new gladness to the sunshine, a new fragrance to the flowers, a new beauty to the earth, a new mystery to life, a new revelation to love, a new depth to sorrow, a new impulse to worship. In that day, the scales will fall from our eyes and we will look upon a new world. And I can't help think that there's not a better description of what the resurrection was. Jesus showing us the new world and for the first time calling us to live it out. 
And so that's what the first church did. That's what we're called to do. And so we're going to end today with communion. And why we do this is because communion is a sign and symbol of better things. Jesus, like he did with the other ones we talked about, came into the world and said, let me show you something that's happening that you might not see. And so Jesus took the most important meal in the Jewish calendar and said, I know that you think this bread represents something else and this wine represents the lamb's blood shed for you as we celebrate the exodus and the freedom of our people thousands of years ago. But I'm going to tell you something else. It actually represents what I'm about to do for you. You just got to see it because it hasn't happened yet. And so he picks up the bread and he says, this is my body and it's broken for you. And then he picks up the cup and he says, this is my blood and it's shed for you. And so when we come to the table, and we eat the gluten-free bread and we drink the grape juice, when we come to the table, we realize it's a symbol of God's new world unfolding right in the middle of the one that we're in right now. And we have hope and we celebrate because the God that we follow is alive and we celebrate his new world. Let me pray for us, then you're free to come take communion. If, if this is your first time with us and you don't feel comfortable, man, that's okay. Um, it's a pretty, hopefully not intimidating form or fashion to take it. You walk up and somebody will give the elements to you. Um, so don't feel any pressure, but if you want to, I invite you to take and celebrate and worship with us. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that he beat death. I'm thankful that I follow and serve a God who's alive. I'm thankful that you are doing something right here and right now that's bigger than a past event and, and, and points towards a future hope. I'm thankful that the resurrection is about an unfolding new world in the middle of ours. I'm thankful that you've called us to show that to people as we take communion. I pray that we're encouraged. I pray that we're inspired. I pray that we remember that the the resurrection isn't a one-time event, but a call to live in a different way that shows people that we follow a living God, that invites people to a better way to live so that they might see Jesus too. We pray these things in his name. Amen.